Chapter 5 of The Gleam in the North by D. K. Bronster. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Eileen. Chapter 5 Keithy Has Too Many Physicians. 1. Still rather pale and wrapped about in a voluminous shawl, little Keith was nevertheless to be seen next afternoon sitting up in bed making two small, round-bodied, stiff-legged animals of wood, known to him as deers, walk across the quilt. First one goat in front, and then the other goat in front, and then they come to the lock, and one puts the other in. Splash! Oh, Keithy, no! begged the now-repentant and shriven Donald, who was sitting beside him. Let's play at something else. Let the deer have a race to the bottom of the bed. I'll hold one, and yours shall win. Can't. Mine deer is drowned now, returned the inexorable Keith, and to make the fact more evident, he suddenly plopped the animal into a bowl of milk, which stood on the table by him. As his mother hurriedly removed it, the door opened, and her husband and Dr. Cameron came in. Ought he to be sitting up like this, Dr. Archibald? she asked. He seemed so much better, and that I thought. Dr. Cameron came and took Donald's place. The small invalid eyed him a trifle suspiciously, and then gave him his shy, angelic smile. Oh, he is much better, pronounced his physician after a moment. Oh, still and on, he must have another dose of that draught. He got up and poured out something in a glass. Oh, here, my bairn. No, your mother had best give it you, perhaps for even a fledgling seraph may revolt at a really nauseating drink of herbs, which at its last administration had, indeed, been copiously diluted with his tears. So Dr. Cameron handed the glass to Alison. With refusals, with grimaces, and finally with an adorable sudden submission, Keithy drank off the potion. But immediately after he had demolished the consolatory scrap of sugar which followed it, he pointed a minute and accusing finger at its compounder, and said, Naughty, gentlemen, naughty, to make Keithy sick, with so much conviction that Alison began anxiously. Oh, darling, do you really... It was precisely at that moment that the door was opened and Dr. Kincaid from Maryborough was announced. The three adults in the room caught their breaths. None of them had ever imagined that Dr. Kincaid would come now. Oh, tell the doctor that I will be with him in a moment, said Alison to the servant visible in the doorway, and then, in a hasty aside, to Ewan. Oh, of course he must not see. She indicated Dr. Cameron on the other side of the bed. But there was no time to carry out that precaution, for the girl, fresh from the wilds and ignorant of the need for dissimulation, had brought Dr. Kincaid straight up to the sick-room, and there he was, already on the threshold, a little uncompromising, hard-featured man of fifty, overworked between the claims of Maryborough, where he dwelt, of its neighbour Fort William, and of the countryside in general. And there was no hope of his not seeing Dr. Cameron. Still, the chances were heavily against his knowing and recognising him. Yet who, save a doctor or a relative, had a rightful place in this sick-room, and a doctor was the one thing which they must not admit that guest to be. 
so completely were the three taken by surprise that there was scarcely time to think. But Ewan instinctively got in front of his kinsman, while Alison went forward to greet the newcomer with the embarrassment which she could not completely hide, murmuring, Oh, Dr. Kincaid, how, how good of you! We did not expect. You are surprised to see me, madam, asked he, coming forward. But I came on a brother of yours, the nicht before last, in a sair plight by Loch Traig's side, and he begged me to come to Ardry as soon as possible. But I could not come before, and fair run off my legs. How is my brother? asked Alison, anxiously. I heard of his mishap, but with a child so ill. Ay, you'd be thinking of your ween first, no doubt. Ah, well, and the young fellow's none too bad, having an uncle's stout skull, as I shall lose your good man must have kent when he left him all his lane there. But I arranged with a farmer at Inverlare, began Ewan. Oh, ay, they came from Inverlare and fetched him, and there he bides, said Dr. Kincaid. He swept a glance round the room. You're pretty throng here. Is yon the patient sitting up in bed? Well, doctor, he seems, thank God, so much better, murmured Alison in extenuation of this proceeding. As she led the physician to the bedside, she saw, with relief, that Dr. Archibald had moved quietly to the window and was looking out, and she thought, oh, after all, no one could know that he was a doctor. Dr. Kincaid examined the little boy, asked some questions, seemed surprised at the answers. From which answers? It appeared that his directions had been anticipated, but said that the child was doing well. And since not even a middle-aged physician in a bad temper could resist the charm of little Keith, he gave a sort of smile when he had finished, and said kindly, Oh, there, my wee manny, you'll soon be running about again. The flower-like eyes were upraised to his. Then might not have no more nasty drink, like that gentleman give Keithy, observed their owner, and again a small finger pointed accusingly to Archibald Cameron, and to his back this time. Dr. Kincaid also looked at that back. Ah, he observed sharply, so yon gentleman has already been treating the bairn, and the measures you've been taking were of his suggesting. Oh, pray, why did you not tell me that, madam? Ewan plunged to the rescue. He had been longing for Archie to leave the room, but supposed the latter thought that flight might arouse suspicion. My friend, Mr. John Sinclair from Caithness, who is paying us a visit, having a certain knowledge of medicine, was good enough. Oh, let me make you known to each other. And Dr. Kincaid, Mr. Sinclair. Mr. Sinclair from Caithness. Ewan had placed his domicile as far away as possible, turned and bowed, and there was a twinkle in his eye but not in Dr. Kincaid's. Huh, it seems I was not so muckle needed, seeing you have gotten a leech to the bairn already. Oh, but the young man with a dunt on his head begged me so sair to come that I listened to him, and though I make this spared my pains. Alison and Ewan hasten in chorus to express their appreciation of his coming, and Ewan, with an appealing glance at his kinsman, began to move towards the door. One or other of the rival practitioners must certainly be got out of the room. And Archie himself now seemed to be of the same opinion. Oh, a leech? No, sir, the merest amateur, who, now that the real physician has come, will take himself off, he said pleasantly. Nay, I'm through. 
you've left me no more to do. And, as he seemed to be going to leave the room in Mr. Sinclair's company, Allison hastily appealed for more information about her detail of treatment, so that he had to stay behind. Dr. Cameron, followed by Donald, all eyes slipped out. Ardroy and his wife, most desirous not to invite or answer any questions about their medically skilled guest, now became remarkably voluble on other subjects, and, as they went downstairs with Dr. Kincaid, pressed him to stay to a meal, hoping fervently that he would refuse, which, luckily, the doctor did. But outside, as he put a foot into the stirrup, he said pretty sourly to Ewan, well, I'm glad the wean's better, Ardroy, but I'd have been obliged to you if you had not guard me to come all these miles when you already had a medical man in the house, and there was no need of me, and I'm a gay busy man. I'm very sorry indeed, doctor, said Ewan, and could not but feel that the reproach was merited. Well, the fact is that he was just on the point of exonerating himself by saying that Mr. Sinclair had not yet arrived on Tuesday, nor did they know of his impending visit. But, thinking that plea possibly imprudent, I said instead, I had no knowledge that Mrs. Sinclair was so skilled. We have not met recently. Ha! Huh, remarked Dr. Kincaid, now astride his horse. A pity that he does not practice, but maybe he does, in Caithness. At any rate, he'll be able to exercise his skill on your brother-in-law, if you mean to do any more for that young man for you'll pardon me if I say that you have not done much as yet. Ewan's colour rose. To have left Hector in that state on a lonely road at nightfall, even despite the measures he had taken for his removal, did indeed show him in a strange and unpleasant light. But it was impossible to explain what had obliged him to do it, and the more than willingness of Hector to be so left. "'Can I have him brought hither from Inverlair, without risk to himself?' he asked. "'Aye,' said Kincaid, "'that, I think, you may do if you send some sort of conveyance. "'The morn, say, then you'll have him here Saturday. "'You'll not walk this distance, naturally, nor ride it. "'And, indeed, if you send for him, "'he'll be better off here under the care of your friend Sinclair "'than lying in a farm so many miles from Maryborough. "'I have not been able to get to him, sign. "'Forby, Ardroy.' added the doctor, looking at him in a rather disturbing manner. The callant talked of wind gibberish, your nicht, and not earth gibberish, neither. A French, of course. Ewan had already witnessed that propensity. And he groaned inwardly. For what had Hector been saying in that tongue, when light-headed? It was to be hoped, if he had forsaken Malbrook for more dangerous themes, that Dr. Kincaid was no French scholar. From the epithet which he had just applied to the language, it sounded as though he were not. However, the physician then took a curt farewell, and he and his steed jogged away down the avenue, Ewan standing looking after him in perplexity. He did not like to leave Hector at Inverlair, yet if he fetched him here, he might be drawing down pursuit upon Archie, supposing that suspicion were to fall upon Hector himself by reason of his abstracted papers. However, by the time he came in again, Ewan had arrived at a compromise. Archie should leave the house at once, which might be more prudent in any case. For, though Dr. Kincaid would hardly go and lay information against him at Fort William, 
and what indeed had he to lay information about? He might easily get talking, if he happened to be summoned there professionally. So, as it wanted yet five days to Archie's rendezvous with Loch Dorney, and he must dispose himself elsewhere, he should transfer himself to the cottage of Angus MacMartin, Ewan's young piper, up at Slochnan Ian, on the farther side of the loch, whence, if necessary, it would be an easy matter to disappear into the mountains. Dr. Cameron raised no objections to this plan, his small patient being now out of danger. He thought the change would be wise, too, on Ewan's own account. He stipulated only that he should not go until next morning, in case Keithy should take a turn for the worse. But the little boy passed an excellent night, so next morning early Ewan took his guest up the brae and gave him over to the care of the little colony of McMartins in the Crofts at Slochnan Ian, where he himself had once been a foster child. 2. The day after, which was Saturday, Ewan's plan of exchanging one compromising visitor for another should have completed itself, but in the early afternoon, to his dismay, the cart which he had sent the previous day to Inverlair to fetch his damaged brother-in-law returned without him. Mr. Grant was no longer at the farm. Not, reported Angus MacMartin, who had been sent in charge of it, that he had wandered away light-headed, as Ewan immediately feared. No, the farmer had said that the gentleman was fully in his right mind, and had left a message that his friends were not to be concerned on his behalf, and that they would see him again before long. A good deal perturbed, however, on Alison's account as well, Ewan went up to Slochnan Ian to tell Dr. Cameron the news. He found his kinsman sitting over the peat fire with a book in his hand, and though, indeed, the illumination of the low little dwelling had not been designed in the interests of study. Dr. Cameron thought it quite likely, though surprising, that Hector really had fully recovered, and added some medical details about certain blows on the head, and how the disturbance which they caused was often merely temporary. And nevertheless, he concluded, one would like to know what notion the boy's got now into that same hot pate of his. You young men. Oh, don't talk like a grandfather, Archie. You're only twelve years older than I. Oh, I feel more your senior than that, lad. How's the bairn? He is leaving his bed this afternoon, since both you and your colleague from Maryborough allowed it. And Dr. Cameron laughed. And then he bit his lip, stooped forward to throw a peat on the fire, and, under cover of the movement, pressed his other hand surreptitiously to his side. But Ewan saw him do it. Oh, what's wrong with you, Archie? Are you not well today? Oh, quite well, answered his cousin, leaning his elbows on his knees. But my old companion is troublesome this afternoon. The ball I got at Falkirk, you'll remember. Oh, you'll not tell me that you're still carrying that in your body, cried Ewan, in tones of reprobation. Archie was pale, even in the peat glow. Oh, how about that gash you took at Culloden Moor, he retorted. And you were limping from it that morning in Glenmally. I saw it. But I don't make it a matter for reproach, Ewan. It is impossible to have the bullet extracted. It's too awkwardly lodged, and I shall carry it to my grave with me. And little regard it, if it did not pester me at times. However, 
here i am comfortably by your good angus's fire not skulking in the heather and cared for as if i were yourself but ewan went down from slochnan ian with an impression of a man in more discomfort than he would acknowledge and a fresh trouble to worry over yet how could he worry in the presence of keithy to whom he then paid a visit in the nursery keithy who now out of bed sat upon his knee and in an earnest voice told him a sorrowful tale of how the fairies having mistaken his deers for cows had carried them off as all highland children knew was their reprehensible habit with cattle and so he could not find them for they were doubtless hidden in the fairy dun and when they were restored they would not be real deers any more they would only look like them as happened with cows stolen and restored by the she his father holding the little pliant body close and kissing him under the chin said that more probably his deers were somewhere in the house and that he would find them for him which was the reason why somewhat later he went in search of donald and discovered him in his mother's room watching her brush out her dark rippling hair which she had evidently been washing for the room smelt faintly and deliciously of birch how do you want me my dear asked alison tossing back her locks do i not always want you heart of mine as a matter of fact, I'm here on an errand for Keithy. Do either you or Donald know anything of the present whereabouts of his dears? He tells me that the Denyashi have taken them. But they both denied any knowledge of the animals. Angus is going to make Keithy a much larger deer, announced Donald, his hand in his father's. I asked him to. A stag with horns. Father, have you ever heard the queer crackling sound that mother's hair makes when she brushes it? Does yours? Oh, I doubt it, replied Ewan, and he looked first at Alison's slim, pretty figure, as, with arms upraised, she began to braid her hair about her head, and then at her amused face in the glass. And, in the mirror, she caught his gaze and smiled back, with something of the bride about her still. But, in the glass, Ewan saw her smile abruptly die out. Her eyes had wandered away from his, reflected there, to the window, and she stood, all at once, like a statue with uplifted arms. "'What?' he began, and in the same moment she said breathlessly, "'Ewan, look!' He took a step or two forward, and saw, about a quarter of a mile away on the far side of the avenue, a moving growth of scarlet, and more two thinner streams of it, like poppies, spreading out to right and left to encircle the house. Alison's arms fell. The soft masses of her hair slipped in a coil onto her shoulder. Soldiers, shouted Donald, and gave a little skip of excitement. For a second, Ewan also stood like a statue. Oh, my God, and Archie half disabled today. Have I the time to get up to him? Yes, this way. He indicated the window at the far side of the room, which looked over the back premises. Now listen, my heart, and you too, Donald. If the soldiers cut me off, and I cannot get up to Slochnan Ian to warn him, if I see that it is hopeless to attempt it, and then I shall run from them. Likely enough, they'll think I am the man they're after, and I shall lead them as long a chase as I can, in order to give Archie time to get away. 
for some of the McMartins may meanwhile take the alarm. And you understand? Oh, Ewan, said his wife, hesitating. He took her hands. And should I be caught? Nay, I think I'll let myself be caught in the end. And they bring me to the house. You may feign to be agitated at the sight of me, but you must not know me for whom I am. You must let them think that I am the man you were hiding. But you must not call me Dr. Cameron, neither. You must not name me at all. If they take me off to Fort William, all the better. By the time they've got me there, Archie will be miles away. And then all Colonel Layton can do, when he recognizes me, will be to send me back again. Oh, heaven grant, though, he added, that the officer with these men does not know me. Oh, dearest love, for Allison had turned rather white. Remember that it was for Keithy's sake, for our sakes, that Archie came here at all. Oh, I must get him safely away, if, if it should cost more than that. Yes, said Allison, a little faintly. Yes, go. I'll do as you say. He held her to him for an instant, and the next was throwing up the sash of the far window. Do you understand too, Donald? And, Allison, I think he will have to tell a lie and say that I myself am away from home. Oh, one thing more. Ewan paused with a leg over the window sill. If I fail to warn Archie which I'll contrive to let you know somehow. You must send another messenger, provided that messenger can get away without being followed. He hung by his hands a moment and dropped. A loud cackling of astonished hens announced his arrival below. Lady Ardroy went back to the glass and began hastily to fasten up her hair. How near are they, Donald? Run quickly to the kitchen and tell the servants to say, if they're asked, that the laird went away to Inverness yesterday, and that if they see him they are to pretend not to know him, and then come back to me. Donald left the room like a stone from a catapult. Oh, this was great sport, and fancy a lie's being actually enjoined by those authorities who usually regarded the mere tendency to one as so reprehensible. End of section 5 Section 6 of The Gleam in the North by D. K. Broster. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Eileen. Chapter 6 Who is this man? 1. When the officer in charge of the party of redcoats, having set his men close round the house of Ardroy, went in person to demand admittance, it was no servant out of whom he might have surprised information, who answered his peremptory knocking, but, doubtless to his annoyance, and the Chatelaine herself. Captain Jackson, however, saluted civilly enough. Oh, Mrs. Cameron, I think. For, being English, he saw no reason to give these ridiculous courtesy titles to the wives of petty landowners. Yes, sir, responded Allison with dignity. I am Mrs. Cameron. I saw you from above, and, since I've no notion why you have come, I descended in order to find out. If I may enter, madam, I will tell you why I've come, responded the officer promptly. By all means, enter, said Allison, with even more of stateliness, hoping he would not notice that she was still out of breath with haste, and, waiting while he gave an order or two, 
preceded him into the parlour. Captain Jackson then became aware that a small boy had somehow slipped to his side. He took a careful look round the large room, and meanwhile Allison, studying his thin, sallow face, decided that she had never seen this officer before, and hoped, for the success of the plan, that neither had he ever seen Ewan. Behind him, through the open parlour door, she perceived her hall full of scarlet coats and white cross-belts and breeches. "'I'm here, madam,' now said the invader, fixing her with a meaning glance. "'As I think you can very well guess, in the king's name, with a warrant to search this house, in which there is every reason to believe that the owner is sheltering a rebel.' "'Oh, Mr. Cameron is away, sir,' responded Allison. "'How, therefore, can he be sheltering any one?' "'Away?' exclaimed Captain Jackson suspiciously. "'How is that? Free was certainly at home on Thursday.' Oh, "'The day of Dr. Kincaid's visit,' thought Allison. "'And then he did give the alarm.' "'Mr. Cameron was here on Thursday,' repeated Captain Jackson with emphasis. "'Oh, I did not deny it,' said Allison, beginning to be nettled at his tone. "'Nevertheless, he went away yesterday.' "'Whither?' was the next question wrapped out at her. Whither, and for what purpose? Alison's own highland temper began to rise now, and with a warming uprush came almost a belief in her own statement. Does the king really demand to know that, sir? He went to Inverness on affairs. By this time, Captain Jackson had no doubt realized that he had to do with a lady of spirit. Perhaps then, madam, he suggested, Mr. Cameron deputed the task of hiding the rebel to you. Oh, I think you would do it well. I must search the house thoroughly. Are any of the rooms locked? Yes, one, said Lady Ardroy. I will come with you and unlock it if you wish to see in. No, you will stay where you are, madam, if you please, retorted the soldier. I will trouble you for your keys, all your keys. I do not wish to damage any of your property by breaking it open. Biting her lip, Alison went in silence to her writing desk. Captain Jackson took the bunch without more ado, and a moment later Alison and her eldest son were alone, locked in. And when she heard the key turned on her, the colour came flooding into her face, and she stood very erect, tapping with one foot upon the floor, in no peaceable mood. A mother, said Donald, tugging at her skirt. And the redcoat does not lock this door. For Captain Jackson had either overlooked or chosen to disregard that in the far corner of the room which led into the kitchen domain. Alison hesitated for a moment. No, better to stay here quietly, as if she had no cause for anxiety. And better not as yet to attempt to send another messenger to Slochnan Ian, who, by blundering, might draw on Dr. Cameron just the danger to be averted. So, for twenty minutes or more, she waited with Donald in the living room, wondering, calculating, praying for patience, sometimes going to the windows and looking out, hearing now and then heavy footsteps about the house, and all the sounds of a search, which she knew would be fruitless, and picturing the havoc which the invaders were doubtless making of her household arrangements. Or perhaps, in spite of Morag's presence, they were frightening little Keith, a thought which nearly broke her resolution of staying where she was. 
Yet, as the minutes ticked away with a slowly fading daylight outside, and nothing happened, her spirits began to rise. Ewan had evidently not been stopped. Indeed, if he once got safely beyond the policies, it was unlikely that he would be. He had probably reached Slochnan Ian unmolested. And surely, too, he would remain there until the soldiers had gone altogether. And, feeling at last some security on that score, Alison sat down and took up a piece of sewing. Oh, but she had not even threaded her needle before there was a stir and a trampling outside the house, and she jumped up and ran to the window. Oh, more soldiers, and someone in the midst of them tightly held. Her husband. And in that moment Alison knew, and was ashamed of the knowledge, and that she must at the bottom of her heart have been hoping that if anyone were captured. No, no, she had not hoped that. For Dr. Cameron's life was in jeopardy, while nothing could happen to Ewan, save unpleasantness. In expiation of that half-wish, she braced herself to the dissimulation which Ewan had enjoined. She drew the boy beside her away from the window. Oh, the soldiers have caught your father, Donald, after all. Remember that you are to pretend not to know who he is, nor what he is doing here. The little boy nodded with bright eyes and held her hand rather tightly. Will they do anything to me, mother, for saying what is not true? No, darling, not this time. And if they take father away to Fort William, it is only what he hopes they will do, and he will soon come back to us. By this time the door of the parlour was being unlocked, and in another moment Captain Jackson was striding into the room. Bring him in, he commanded, half turning, and the redcoats brought in a rather hot, dishevelled Ardroy, with a smear of blood down his chin, and with four soldiers, no less, holding him firmly by wrists and arms and shoulders. It was not difficult for Alison to show the agitation demanded. Indeed, there was for an instant the risk that it might exceed its legitimate bounds. But she had herself in hand again at once. Her husband gave her one glance and shook his head almost imperceptibly and to show that he had not succeeded in his attempt. Then he looked away again and studied the antlers over the hearth while the sergeant in charge of him made his report, the gist of which was that the prisoner, coming unexpectedly upon them near the lake up there, had led them the devil of a chase. Indeed, had he not tripped and fallen, he might have escaped them altogether. How tripped! thought Alison scornfully, as if Ewan, with his perfect balance and his stag's fleetness, ever tripped when he was running. He had thrown himself down for them to take the fools. And that this really was the case, she knew from the passing twitch of amusement at the corner of her husband's blood-stained mouth. But seeing him standing there in the power of the Sajerant Gerak, oh, she wished he had not done it. "'Well, have you anything to say, Mr. Sinclair?' demanded Captain Jackson, planting himself in front of the prize. And at the mention of that name, both Ewan and his wife knew for certain that they owed this visitation to Dr. Kincaid. Oh, "'Not to you, sir, but I should wish to offer my apologies to Lady Ardroy,' said Ewan, with an inclination of the head in Alison's direction, "'for bringing about an 
an annoying incident in her house. Captain Jackson shrugged a shoulder. A very polite of you, gad. But in that case, why have come here in the first instance? He moved away a little, got out a paper and studied it. And then he looked up, frowning. Who are you? he demanded. Oh, does not your paper tell you that? asked Ewan pleasantly. Alison wondered if the officer thought that he was Lochdorni. But Lochdorni was, she believed, a man between fifty and sixty, and Dr. Cameron in the forties. Oh, surely, this officer could not take Ewan for either. Her heart began to lift a little. Captain Jackson, after looking, still with a frown, from Ewan to the paper, and from the paper to Ewan, suddenly folded it up and glared at her. Now, madam, who is this man? If I've sheltered him, as you state, is it likely that I should tell you? asked Alison quietly. How call the servants, said Captain Jackson to a soldier near the door. No, wait a moment. He turned again and pointed at Donald, standing at his mother's side, his eyes fixed on the captive, who, for his part, was now looking out of the window. Are you, boy, do you know who this man is? Must you drag in a small child? began Alison indignantly. Oh, if you will not answer, yes, retorted the Englishman. And he's quite of an age to supplement your unwillingness, madam. Oh, come, boy, he advanced a little on Donald. Oh, don't be frightened. I'm not going to hurt you. Just tell me now, have you ever seen this man before? And the question appeared to Donald extremely amusing, and since he was not at all frightened, but merely excited, he gave a little laugh. Oh, yes, sir. How often? His mother's hand on his shoulder gave him a warning pressure. I, I could not count. Oh, six times, seven times? More? He comes here often, then. And Donald considered. One could not say that father came here. He was here. No, sir. No, oh, he does not come often, eh? How long has he been there this time? And Donald, a little perplexed, glanced up at his mother. What was he to say to this? But Captain Jackson now took steps to prevent his receiving any more assistance from that source. He stretched out a hand. Oh, no, thank you, Mrs. Cameron. If you won't speak, you shan't prompt, either. Oh, come here, boy. He drew Donald, without roughness, away, and placed him more in the middle of the room, with his back to his mother. Have you ever heard this gentleman called Sinclair? he asked. Now, tell the truth. Donald told it. No, never, he replied, shaking his golden head. <laughs> I thought as much. Well, now, my boy. I'll make a guess at what you have heard him called, and you shall tell me if I guess right, eh? And Captain Jackson, attempting heartiness, smiled somewhat sourly. Oh, I'll not promise, said the child cautiously. Oh, the young devil has been primed, said the soldier under his breath. Then he shot the query at him as suddenly as possible. His name is the same as yours, and Cameron. Taken aback by this, Donald wrinkled his brows and said nothing. With Doctor in front of it, Dr. Cameron, pursued the Inquisitor. Now, have I not guessed right? Oh, no, sir, said Donald, relieved. Ewan was no longer looking out of the window, 
and he was frowning more than Captain Jackson had frowned. He had never foreseen Donald's being harried with questions. How do you imagine, he broke in, suddenly, and that a man in my shoes is like to have his real name flung about in the hearing of a small child? Captain Jackson paid no heed to this remark. Now, my boy, you can remember the name quite well, if you choose. Of that I'm sure. If you don't choose. He paused suggestively. Take your hand off that child's shoulder, commanded Ardroy in a voice so dangerous that, though he had not moved, his guards instinctively took a fresh grip of him. Oh, said Captain Jackson, transferring his attention at once from the little boy. Who is that where the wind blows from? This young mule is a relative of yours. Oh, is that the only reason a man may have for objecting to see a small child bullied? asked Ewan hotly. It is not the only one in Scotland, I assure you, whatever you English may feel about the matter. But Captain Jackson declined to follow this red herring. What lies entirely with you, Mr. Sinclair, to prevent any further questioning? No, it does not, declared Ewan. I've told you once, sir, that a man in my position does not have his real name cried to all the winds of heaven. Lady Ardroy herself is ignorant of it. She took me in, knowing only that I was in need of rest and shelter. I do not wish her to learn it, lest Mr. Cameron, when he returns, be not best pleased to find whom she has been housing in his absence. But I will tell you my name at Fort William, if, indeed, your commanding officer there do not find it out first. This excursion into romance, a quite sudden inspiration on its author's part, really shook Captain Jackson for a moment since he was well aware that there were divisions, and sharp ones, among the Jacobites. Yet, from Dr. Kincaid's account, Ewan Cameron himself, two days ago, had answered from Mr. Sinclair. As he stood undecided, enlightenment came to him from a most unexpected quarter. "'Father,' suddenly said a high, clear little voice, "'Father, has you finded them?' "'What's this?' The English officer swung round. Indeed, every man in the room turned to look at the small figure, which, quite unobserved, even by Allison, had strayed in through the open door. And before anyone had tried to stop him, Keith had pattered forward and seized his father round the legs. "'Might come down to look for my dears,' he announced, smiling up at him. "'Who is all these peoples?' It was the last query about identity asked that evening. Ewan saw that the game was up, and the soldiers who held him having, perhaps unconsciously, loosed their hold at this gentle and unexpected arrival. He stooped and caught up the wrecker of his gallant scheme. No, my wee bird, I've not found your dears. I've been found myself, he whispered, and could not keep a smile from the lips which touched that velvet cheek. But the implications of this unlooked-for greeting had now burst upon Captain Jackson with shattering force. Half inarticulate with rage, he strode forward and shook his fist in the prisoner's face. You, you liar! You are yourself, you and Cameron. Oh, pray do not terrify this child, also, observed the culprit coolly. For Keithy, after one look at the angry soldier, had hidden his face on his father's shoulder. He's only three years old, and not worthy of your attentions. 
Captain Jackson fairly gibbered. You think that you have fooled me, you and your lady there. You'll soon find out at Fort William who is the fool. And put that child down. Please make that red gentleman go away, petitioned a small voice from the neighborhood of Ardroy's neck. That's out of my power, I fear, my darling, replied the young man. And you had better go to mother now. Since, with a child in his arms, not a soldier seemed disposed to hinder him, he walked calmly across the room and put Keithy into Alice's, whence he contemplated Captain Jackson with a severe and heavenly gaze. Well, now that this charming domestic interlude is over, snapped that soldier. Perhaps, sir, you will vouchsafe some explanation of your conduct in leading my men this dance, and in striving to hide your identity in your own house in this ridiculous fashion. When Mr. Cameron returns, forsooth. Again, Ewan, usually a punctiliously truthful person, was inspired to a flight of imagination. I admit that it was foolish of me, he replied with every appearance of candor. But I saw you and your men coming, and having been out, as you probably know, in the forty-five, I thought it better to instruct my wife to say that I was from home, and left the house by a back window. I see now that I should have done better to show more courage, and to stay and face your visit out. During this explanation, Captain Jackson, his hands behind his back, was regarding the self-styled coward very fixedly. And do you think that you can gull me into believing that you led my men that chase because of anything you did six or seven years ago, Mr. Ewan Cameron? No, you were playing the decoy, and giving the man you're hiding here a chance to get away. Ardroyd shrugged his shoulders. Well, have it your own way, sir, he said indifferently. I know that a simple explanation of a natural action is seldom believed. No, only by simpletons, retorted Captain Jackson. However, you can try its effect upon Lieutenant Governor Layton at Fort William, for to Fort William you will go, Mr. Cameron, without delay. And do not imagine that I shall accompany you. I've not finished looking for your friend from Caithness, and when you're no longer here to draw the pursuit, it may be that I shall find him. It was true that Ewan had contemplated being taken to Fort William, but not exactly in his own character and upon his own account. And this was a much less attractive prospect. However, there was no help for it, and the only thing that mattered was that Archie should get safely away. If only he could be certain that he had. Surely, the McMartins. His thoughts sped up to Slochnan Ian. I'll take two file of men, Sergeant, said Captain Jackson, and set out with Mr. Cameron at once. You can reach Highbridge by nightfall and lie there. At that, Alison came forward. She had put down Keithy and was holding him by the hand. He continued to regard the English officer with the same unmitigated disapproval. How do you mean, sir, that you're sending my husband to Fort William at once, and this very evening? Yes, madam, I've really no choice, replied the soldier, who appeared to have regained control of his temper. But if he will give me his word of honor to go peaceably, and make no attempt to escape, by the way, I need not order any harsh measures for the journey. How will you do that, Mr. Cameron? Ewan came back to his own situation, and to a longing to feel Keithy in his arms again for a moment. Yes, sir, 
I pledge you my word as a gentleman to give no trouble on the road. Indeed, why should I? he added. I'm innocent. But if Mr. Cameron is to go at once, objected Allison, pray allow me time to put together a few necessaries for him, since however short a while he stays at Fort William, he will need them. Instant departure was not so urgent that Captain Jackson could reasonably refuse this request. Yes, you may do that, madam, he replied a trifle stiffly, provided that you're not more than a quarter of an hour about the business. Otherwise the party may be benighted before they can reach Highbridge. And he went quite civilly to hold the door for her. As Alison passed her husband, she looked at him hard with a question in her eyes and she wanted to be sure. Again he gave an almost imperceptible shake of the head. She drew her brows together, and with a child on either side of her, and the elder lagging and gazing half frightened, half admiringly, at his captive father, went out of the room. Captain Jackson did the same, but he left four men with muskets behind him. Of these Ewan took no notice, but began walking slowly up and down the room dear to him by so many memories. Now that the moment of being taken from his home was upon him, he did not like it. But he would soon be back, he told himself. How heavily would he be fined by the government for this escapade? However little, it would mean a still harder struggle to make both ends meet. But no price was too high to pay for Archie's life or for Keithy's. Both of them were tangled up somehow in this payment. He wondered, too, with some uneasiness, how and why the redcoats, whom he had allowed to capture him, had been right up by Lochnahollere when he came upon them. And they, and that had been a chase, too. He was young enough to have enjoyed it. The door was opened again. There was Alison, with a little packet in her hand, and Captain Jackson behind her. You can take leave of your wife, Mr. Cameron, said he, motioning him to come to her at the door. But only, it was evident, under his eyes and in his hearing. So nothing could be said about Archie. Even Gallic was not safe, for it was quite possible that the Englishman had picked up a few words. Under the officer's eyes, then, Ardroy took his wife in his arms and kissed her. I shall not be away for long, my dear. God bless you, and kiss the boys for me. To Alison Cameron it seemed incredible that he was really being taken from her with so little warning, when only a couple of hours ago he had been in her room asking about Keithy's lost toys. And, for all either of them yet knew, he might be sacrificing himself in vain. But she looked up into his eyes and said, with meaning, I will try to do all you wish while you are away. A wifely utterance to which Captain Jackson could hardly take exception. And three minutes later, with no more intimate leave-taking than that, she was at the window watching her husband being marched away under the beaches of the avenue with his little guard. Before he vanished from sight, he turned and waved his hand, with the air of one who meant to be back ere any of their leaves had fluttered down. Oh, I am sorry for this, madam, said the voice of Captain Jackson behind her. But, if you'll forgive me for saying so, Mr. Cameron has brought it upon himself. 
Now, understand, if you please, that no one is to leave the house on any pretext. I've not finished here, yet. But you are free to go about your ordinary occupations, and I'll see that you're not molested, so long as my order is observed. For that, Alison thanked him, and went upstairs to solace her loneliness by putting little Keith to bed. She had already tried to send Morag, the easiest to come at of the servants, up the bray, and had not found it feasible. And, surely, surely, Dr. Cameron must have taken the alarm by now, and be away. Still, there was always her promise to Ewan, a promise which it began to seem impossible to carry out. 2. Yet, in a sense, that promise was already in process of being kept, though in a manner of which Alison was fortunately ignorant. At the very moment when she had finally succeeded in satisfying her younger son's critical inquiries about the gentleman downstairs that was so angry, her eldest born, whom she had last seen seated on the stairs, gazing down through the rails with deep interest at the group of soldiers in the hall, was halfway between the house and Lochnaholler, his heart beating rapidly with excitement, triumph, and another less agreeable emotion. Both in courage and intelligence, Donald was old for his years. He knew that his mother had tried in vain to send Morag out of the house while she was making up the packet for father. The resplendent idea had then come to him of himself carrying out father's wish and warning Dr. Cameron of the presence of the soldiers, of which he partially at least grasped the importance. On the whole, he thought he would not tell his mother until the deed was accomplished, for it was just possible that if he mentioned his purpose beforehand, she would forbid him to carry it through. As for getting out of the house, perhaps the soldiers at the various doors would not pay much attention to him, whom they probably considered just a little boy, though it was scarcely so that he thought of himself. Perhaps, also, they would not be aware that never in his life before had he been out so late alone. He could say that he had lost a ball in the shrubbery, and that would be true, for he had, about a month ago. And, even if it had not been true, lies seemed to be strangely permissible today. He could creep out of the shrubbery on the other side, and then run, run all the way round the end of the loch, and up the track which climbed the shoulder of Miaur Achai. As it happened, Donald did not have to employ the plea about the lost ball for in wandering round the back premises he came on a door which was not guarded at all. Its particular sentry was even then escorting his father towards Fort William, and by some oversight had not been replaced. So the small adventurer quite easily found himself among the outbuildings, deserted and silent, except for the voices of two invisible redcoats who were arguing about something round the corner of the stables. By them his light footfall went unheard, and a moment or two afterwards Donald was looking back in elation from the edge of the policies on the lighted window of the house of Ardroy. That was a good ten minutes ago. Now, he was wishing that he had brought Lueth with him. Oh, it was such a strange darkness, not really dark, but an eerie kind of half-light. And the loch, which he was now approaching, what an odd ghostly shine the water had between the trees. He had never seen it look like that before. 
This was past all doubt, the hour of that dread thing, the water-horse. And Donald's feet began to falter a little in the path as he came nearer and nearer to the lock of the eagle, so friendly in the day, so very different now. No child in the highlands but had heard many a story of water-horse and kelpie and urisk, however much his elders might discourage such narratives. It was true that father had told him, and there were no such things as these fabled inhabitants of loch and stream and mountainside. But the awful fact remained that Morag had a second cousin in Kintail, who had been carried off by an Ech Uske. En loch duch it was, seeing a beautiful horse come into his little enclosure. He could not resist climbing onto its back. That was just what the water-horse wanted, for it rushed down to the loch with its rider, and Morag's second cousin was never seen again. Only next day his lungs floated ashore. All the rest of him had been eaten up. Not quite to know what one's lungs were made it still more horrible. At Donald's age one is not capable of formulating an axiom about the difficulty of proving a negative, but this evening's adventure brought the boy some instinctive perception of its truth. Her father had never seen a water-horse, it was true, but in the face of Morag's story. And then there was another most disturbing thought to accompany him. What if something in the nature of an angel were suddenly to appear and throw him into the loch as a punishment for having pushed Keithy in and made him ill? and there would be no father on the island now to rescue him. Donald's steps grew slower still. He was now almost skirting Loch Nahollere on the little track through the heather and bracken, where the pine branches swayed and whispered, and made the whole atmosphere, too, much darker and more alarming. If he had realized earlier the possibility of an avenger, and then he thought of those who had fought at the great battle before he was born, of cousin Ian Stewart and the broken claymore, of his father, of the dead chief whose name he bore, and went onwards with a brave and beating heart. But there were such strange sounds all round him, noises and cracklings which he had never heard in the day, open-air little boy though he was, and once he jumped violently as something shadowy and slim ran across his very path. Oh, only a weasel, said the child to himself, but a very large one. And then Donald's heart gave a bound and seemed to stop altogether. Something much bigger than a weasel was coming, and though he could not see it, it was trampling through the undergrowth on his right. And the Ech Uske, undoubtedly. There broke from him a little sound too attenuated for a shriek, a small puppy-like whimper of dismay. Who's there? called out a man's voice sharply. Who's there? Answer me. Oh, at least, then, it was not a water horse. I'm... I'm Donald Cameron of Ardroy, replied the adventurer in quavering tones, his eyes fixed on the dark, dim shape now visible, from the waist upwards, among the surging waves of bracken. This did not look like an avenging angel, either. It seemed to be just a man. 
Oh, Donald, it exclaimed. Oh, what in the name of the good being are you doing here at this hour? Oh, don't be frightened, child, and tis your uncle Hector. And the apparition pushed through the fern and bent over him. Oh, are you lost, my boy? Immensely relieved, Donald looked up at the young man. He had not seen him for nearly two years, and his actual recollections of his appearance were hazy, but he had often heard of the uncle, who was a soldier of the King of France. Evidently, too, Uncle Hector had lately been in some battle, for he wore round his head a bandage, which showed white in the dusk. No, Uncle Hector, I'm not lost. I'm going up to Slochnan Ian to tell Dr. Cameron that there are some soldiers come after him, and that he must go away quickly. Oh, Dr. Cameron, exclaimed his uncle in surprise. Then, glancing round, he lowered his voice and dropped on one knee beside the little boy. Oh, what on earth is he doing at Ardroy? Oh, I thought he never came here now. You're sure that it was Dr. Cameron and Donald, and not Mr. McFair of Loch Dorney? No, I know it was Dr. Cameron. He stayed in our house first. He came because... because Keithy was ill. His head went down for a second. He made him well again. And the other doctor, from Maryborough, came too. Then Dr. Cameron went up to stay with Angus McMartin. And if you please, I must go on to Slochnan Ian at once. But his young uncle, though he had risen to his feet again, was still blocking the path and staring down at him, and saying as though he was speaking to himself. Oh, then it was he who's just gone away from Slochnan Ian with Angus, only they were so discreet and they'd not name him to me. No, my little hero, there's no need for you to go any farther. I've just come from Angus's cottage myself, and they told me the gentleman was gone some time since because of the soldiers down at the house. And, by the way, are the soldiers still there? Yes, and some of them have taken father away to Fort William. They ran after him, he got out of a window, and they caught him and thought at first he was Dr. Cameron. Father wanted them to think that, explained Donald, with a sort of vicarious pride. Hector Grant's brow grew black under the bandage. Oh, mon Dieu! Mon Dieu, quel malheur! Oh, I must see your mother, Donald. Now go back, Luchen, and try to get her to come up to me here by the loch. I'll take you a part of the way. You're sure, Uncle Hector, asked Donald anxiously, that Dr. Cameron has gone away. A good child, said Uncle Hector appreciatively. Yes, foi de gentilhomme, Donald, he is gone. There's no need for you to continue this nocturnal adventure. And I fancy that your mother will forgive me a good deal for putting a stop to it. Oh, come along. Most willingly did Donald's hand slide into that of his uncle. If one can be quit of a rather terrifying enterprise with honor. It did not seem nearly so dark now, and the water horse had gone back into the land of bedtime stories. But there was still an obstacle to his protector's plan of which he must inform him. Oh, I don't think, Uncle Hector, he said doubtfully, as they began to move away, that the soldiers will let Mother come out to see you. Nobody was to leave the house, they said. Well, they did not see me come out. But perhaps they would let you go in. Uncle Hector stopped. 
Oh, they let me in fast enough, I warrant. But would they let me come out again? Perhaps, after all, I'd better come no nearer. Can you go back from here alone, Donald? But indeed I see you can, since you have such a stout heart. The heart in question fell a little at this flattering deduction. By the way, you say Keithy is better. Is he quite recovered? Oh, Keithy? He's out of bed today. Indeed, said Keithy Senior quite scornfully, and tis a pity he is, for he came downstairs by his lane when the soldiers were here and did a very silly thing. And he explained in what Keithy's foolishness had consisted. So, twas he that spoiled father's fine plan, which I knew all about. Ha, ah, fine plan. I wonder what your mother thought of it, once more commented Hector Grant, half to himself. Well, Donald, give her this kiss from me, and tell her that I will contrive somehow to see her when the soldiers have gone. Meanwhile, I think I'll return to the safer hospitality of Miaulachal. Now, run home. She'll be anxious about you. He stooped and kissed the self-appointed messenger, and gave him an encouraging pat. Oh, good night, Uncle Hector, said Donald politely. I'll tell Mother. And he set off at a trot which soon carried him out of sight in the dusk. "'And now, what am I going to do?' asked Lieutenant Hector Grant in French of his surroundings. Something croaked in the rushes of Loch Nahollere. Ah, "'Tudy,' he inquired, turning his head. "'Nay, jesting apart, and this is a pretty coil that I've set on foot.' End of Section 6 Section 7 of The Gleam in the North by D. K. Broster. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Eileen. Chapter 7 A Great Many Lies. 1. It is undoubtedly easier to invite Durance than to get free of it again. So Ewan found after his interview next day with old Lieutenant Governor Layton now in command at Fort William, who was rather querulous, declaring with an injured air that, from what he had been told about Mr. Cameron of Ardroy, he should not have expected such conduct from him. However, he finished pessimistically, disloyalty that is bred in the bone will always out, I suppose, and once a Cameron, always a Cameron. Since Ewan's captor and accuser, Captain Jackson, was still absent, the brief interview produced little of value, either to Colonel Layton or himself, and Ardroy spent a good deal of that Sunday pacing round and round his bare, though by no means uncomfortable, place of confinement, wishing fervently that he knew whether Archie had got away in safety. Never, never, if any ill befell him, would he forgive himself for having brought him to the house. The next day Colonel Layton had him in for examination again chiefly in order to confront him with Captain Jackson, now returned empty-handed from his raid, and it was Ewan's late visitor who took the more prominent part in the proceedings, either questioning the prisoner himself, or prompting his elderly superior in a quite obvious manner. The reason for this procedure Ewan guessed to lie in the fact that Leighton was a newcomer at Fort William, having succeeded only a few months ago 
the astute Colonel Crawford, an adept at dealing with Highland difficulties, and one on whom Captain Jackson seemed to be desirous of modelling himself, if not his colonel. Ewan steadily denied having had any doubtful person in his house. Mr. Sinclair, whose presence he could not entirely explain away, being, as he had already stated, a friend on a visit, which visit had ended the day before the arrival of the military. He stuck to his story that when he himself had seen the soldiers approaching, his courage had failed him, and he had dropped from a window and run from them. "'If that is so, Mr. Cameron,' said the lieutenant-governor, echoing Captain Jackson, "'and then you must either have had a guilty conscience, or you were playing the decoy. And I suspect that it was the latter, since you do not look the sort of man who would get out of a window at the mere approach of danger.' Ardroy supposed that this was a species of compliment. But he was feeling bored and rather disheartened at having landed himself in a captivity which promised to be longer than he had anticipated. He would not indeed regret it, he told himself, if he had saved Archie. But of that he was not perfectly sure. For though Captain Jackson had failed to capture him, yet a party from one of the scattered military posts might have done so once the alarm was given. He looked out over the heads of the two officers, out of the window, whence he could get a glimpse of the waters of Loch Linne, shining and moving in the sun. And the thought of being shut up in Fort William for an indefinite period was becoming increasingly distasteful. But it was ridiculous to suppose that they had grounds for keeping him more than a few days. So he declared that appearances were deceitful, and again pointed out his exemplary behaviour since his return to Scotland. He desired no more, he said, than to go on living quietly upon his land. It was no doubt very tame and unheroic, and thus to plead for release, but what was the use of remaining confined here if he could avoid it? And for a while after that he sat there, having been provided with a chair, hardly listening to Colonel Layton as he prosed away, with occasional interruptions from his subordinate, but wondering what Alison was doing at this moment, and whether Keithie were any the worse for his fateful excursion downstairs, and scarcely noticing that the colonel had seized another of his homilies about disloyalty to listen to a young officer who had come in with some message. Until his own name occurring in the communication drew his wandering attention. The colonel had become quite alert. "'Bring him up here at once,' he said to the newcomer, and, turning to the listless prisoner, added, oh, "'Mr. Cameron, here's a gentleman just come and given himself up to save you, so he says, from further molestation on his behalf.' He had Ewan's attention now. For one horrible moment Ardroyd felt quite sick. He had the wild half-thought that Archie— but no, Archie was incapable of so wrong and misguided an action as throwing away his liberty and wrecking his mission merely to save him from imprisonment. And then through the open door came the young officer again, and after him, with a bandage about his head and a smile upon his lips, Hector. Ewan suppressed a gasp, but the colour which had left it came back to his face. He got up from his chair astounded, and not best pleased, at this crazy deed. 
Hector Grant did not seem to find his situation dull. He had about him an air which it would have been unkind, and though possible, to call a swagger, which air, however, dropped from him a little at the sight of his brother-in-law, in whose presence he had evidently not expected so soon to find himself. He glanced across at him, with a slightly deprecatory lift of the eyebrows, while Ardroy feared that he must be looking, as he felt, rather blank. How oh, it was well-meaning of the lad, but how could it possibly help matters? Colonel Leighton, however, glanced hopefully at the voluntary captive. Well, sir, and so you've come to give yourself up. On what grounds, may I ask? Because, Hector answered him easily, I heard that my brother-in-law, Mr. Cameron of Ardroy here, present, had been arrested on the charge of having entertained a suspicious stranger in his house. Now, as I was myself that supposed stranger. Ah, interrupted Colonel Leighton, shaking his head sagely. I knew I was right in my conviction that Mr. Cameron was lying when he asserted that he had sheltered nobody. I knew that no one of his name was to be trusted. Oh, he was not sheltering me, sir, replied Hector coolly. And, therefore, I've come of my own free will to show you how baseless are your suspicions of him. For, if a man cannot have his wife's brother to visit him without being hailed off to prison. His wife's brother, who are you, then? You've not yet told us, remarked Captain Jackson. Lieutenant Hector Grant of the Regiment d'Albany, in the service of His Most Christian Majesty the King of France. You have papers to prove that. Well, not on me. And why not? asked the other soldier. Oh, why should I carry my commission with me when I come to pay a private visit to my sister? asked Hector. <laughs> Evidently, thought Ewan, he was not going to admit the theft of any of his papers, though he himself suspected that the young man did, despite his denial, carry his commission with him. He wondered, and was sure that Hector was wondering too, whether the missing documents were not all the time in Colonel Leighton's hands. And that was all your business in Scotland? And to visit your sister? How oh, is not that sufficient? asked the affectionate brother. Why, well, I'd not seen Lady Ardroy for a matter of two years, and she is my only near relative. After I'd left the house I heard, as I say, that my presence, how oh, heaven knows why, had thrown suspicion upon Mr. Cameron, and I hastened. But here Captain Jackson interrupted him. If it was upon your behalf, Mr. Grant, that Mr. Cameron found it necessary to run so far, and to tell so many lies on Saturday, and then he must be greatly mortified at seeing you here now. Oh, I doubt if it was for you that he went through all that. Oh, but if, on the other hand, you were the cause of his performances, then your visit cannot have been so innocuous as you pretend. Hector was seen to frown. This officer was too sharp. He had outlined a nasty dilemma, and the young Highlander hardly knew upon which of its horns to impale himself and Ewan. The colonel now turned heavily upon Ardroy. Is this young man your brother-in-law, Mr. Cameron? Well, certainly he is, sir. And did he stay at your house upon a visit? Awkward to answer that, considering the nature of Hector's stay and its exceeding brevity. Hector himself prudently looked out of a window. Oh, yes, he did pay me a visit. And when did he arrive? 
Ewan decided that, on the whole, truth was best. On last Monday evening. Oh, I should be glad to know for what purpose he came. Oh, you have heard it, sir. He is, I repeat, my wife's brother. Oh, but that fact, Mr. Cameron, said Colonel Leighton weightily, does not render him immune from suspicion, especially when one considers his profession. He is a Jacobite, or he would not be in the service of the King of France. Oh, you know quite well, sir, countered Ewan, that the King of France has by treaty abandoned the Jacobite cause. How was it, on Mr. Grant's account, that you behaved as you did on Saturday, pressed the colonel. But Ewan replying that he did not feel himself bound to answer that question, and the commanding officer turned to Hector again. On what day, Mr. Grant, did you terminate your visit to Mr. Cameron? Oh, on the day that your men invaded his house, Saturday, answered Hector, driven to this unfortunate statement by a desire to give colour to Ewan's performances on that day. Oh, but Mr. Cameron has just told us that Mr. Sinclair left the previous day, Friday, put in Captain Jackson quickly, and Hector bit his lip. Obviously, it had a very awkward side, this ignorance of what Ewan had already committed himself to. Captain Jackson permitted himself a smile. At any rate, you were at Ardray on Thursday, and saw Dr. Kincaid when he went to visit the sick child. This Hector was uncertain whether to deny or avow. He therefore said nothing. But since you are trying to make us believe that you are the mysterious Mr. Sinclair from Caithness, who was treating him, pursued Captain Jackson, well, you must have seen Dr. Kincaid. Oh, I see no reason why I should not have done what I could for my own nephew, answered Hector, doubling off on a new track. Oh, quite so, agreed Captain Jackson. And then, since your visit was purely of a domestic character, one may well ask why Mr. Cameron was at such pains on that occasion to pass you off, not as a relation, but as a friend from the North. And why were you then so much older, a man in the forties, instead of in the twenties, as you are today? How was there so much difference in my appearance? queried Hector innocently. I was fatigued. I'd been sitting up all night with a sick child. <laughs> we're wasting time, declared Captain Jackson. Oh, this is not Mr. Sinclair. And the colonel echoed him with dignity. No, certainly not. Is not Dr. Kincaid in the fort this morning, sir? asked the captain, leaning towards him. Oh, I believe he is. Go and request him to come here at once, if you please, Mr. Burton, said the colonel to the subaltern who had brought Hector in. And then we shall settle this question once for all. By this time, Ewan had resumed his seat. Hector, his hands behind his back, appeared to be whistling a soundless air between his teeth. It was impossible to say whether he were regretting his fruitless effort. For plainly it was going to be fruitless. But, at all events, he was showing a good front to the enemy. Dr. Kincaid hurried in, with his usual air of being very busy. Are you sent for me, Colonel? Yes, Doctor if you please. Have you seen this young man before? Not Mr. Cameron of Ardroy here, but the other. Or perhaps Dr. Kincaid does not greatly care to look at me, suggested Ewan. The doctor threw him a glance. Oh, I had my duty to do, Ardroy. And then he looked, as desired, at the younger prisoner. 
A lot. I should think I'd seen him before. On God's name, young man, and your gay heart in the head. Tis the lad I found half-doited on Loch Trague's side, Tuesday next sign, with a dunt in it, of which yon's the sign. He pointed to the bandit. On Tuesday night, you say, doctor, asked Captain Jackson. Aye, Tuesday next. I mind well it was. I was away up Loch Trigg the day, to old McInnes there. Captain Jackson turned on Hector. Oh, perhaps, Mr. Grant, he suggested, you were light-headed from this blow, when you thought you were at Ardroy till Saturday. It was to prevent me having been carried there, at my brother-in-law's orders, queried Hector. Oh, it is true that Ardroy spoke of doing that, admitted Dr. Kincaid. He spared after the young man, and the day I was at his house. But yon was the Thursday. Oh, Mr. Cameron says that Mr. Grant came to Ardroy on the Monday, and Mr. Grant himself states that he stayed there until Saturday. Yet, on Tuesday, doctor, you find him twenty miles away, with a broken head. And he has the effrontery to pretend that he was the Mr. Sinclair, whom you saw in the sick child's room at Ardroy on the Thursday. <laughs> Set him up exclaimed the doctor scornfully. And the man I saw then, as I've told you, Colonel, was over forty, a tall, comely man, and fair-complexioned to boot. And I told you who that man was, in my opinion, and Dr. Archibald Cameron, and the Jacobite himself. And for this callant to seek to pretend to me that he was yon Sinclair, is fair flying in the face of such wits as Providence has given me. And you'd better keep him here for treatment of his own." And, on that, scarce waiting for dismissal, Dr. Kincaid took himself off again. Oh, Dr. Kincaid's advice is sound, and don't you think, Colonel, observed Captain Jackson with some malice. And, as the roads do not seem over-safe for this young man, egad, and to our best to keep him off them for a while. And your fine redcoats don't seem able to make them safe, certainly, retorted Mr. Grant. Oh, come, come said Colonel Leighton impatiently. We've had enough of bandying words. One thing is quite plain. Mr. Cameron and his kinsman here are both in collusion to shield someone else, and that person has probably been correctly named by Dr. Kincaid. Have Mr. Cameron taken back. You can put Mr. Grant in the same room with him, for the present, at any rate. Two. Oh, my dear Hector, began Ardroy, half laughing, half sighing, when the door of that locality was shut on them. Oh, I know what you're going to say, Ewan. Hector did not let him say it in consequence. Yes, I've done no good. Oh, I may even have done harm, but I could not stay a free man when I had brought all this trouble upon you, as I have done. Oh, don't shake your head but I had a faint hope that I could gull them into some sort of an exchange. At any rate, I brought you all kinds of messages from Alison. Oh, you saw her. How is Keithy? And, most important of all, did Archie get safely away? That is yes to all of your questions. Why oh, did see Alison. Keithy, I understand, is as well as ever he was. And Dr. Cameron was clear away from the McMartins before I myself arrived there on Saturday evening. Nor has he been captured since, or one but have heard it in the neighborhood. Here Hector looked at the windows. 
I wonder how much filing these bars would need. Ewan could not help laughing. You go too fast, Ekin. I hope shortly to be invited to walk out of the door in the ordinary way, and against you, since I do not believe that they have your stolen papers. They can prove nothing. It was self-sacrificing of you in the extreme to come here and give yourself up. But my arrest, I feel sure, was due in the first instance to Dr. Kincaid's sense of duty, of which he made mention just now, and not to any information about Dr. Cameron, rifled from your pockets. His hand at his chin, Hector looked at him. Oh, I wish I could believe that. Yet it is my doing, Ewan, for this reason. If I had not been so damnably ill-tempered at Ardroy in the other evening, I'd not have come upon that spy where I did the next day, and have lost my papers. My loss was the direct cause of your going to warn Lochtorni, and hence meeting Dr. Cameron in his stead. And, if you'd not met him, he could not have come back to Ardroy with you, and have been seen by that cursed interfering physician of yours. You see, I know all about that from Alison, with whom I contrived a meeting through your little hero of a son. I came upon him, trotting up to Slochnan Ian in the dark to carry a warning. How Donald went up to Slochnan Ian! And did Alison choose him as the messenger? Oh, not a bit of it. And t'was his own notion, stout little fellow. I found him by the loch and sent him back, since I knew that whoever was sheltering with Angus McMartin was already gone. It was from Donald that I first learned who it was. He's a brave child, Ewan, and I congratulate you on giving me such a nephew. And yet, thought Ewan all at once, it is really Donald who is the cause of everything. If he had not pushed Keith into the loch, I should never have ridden for Dr. Kincaid and come upon Hector. <laughs> Nay, it goes further back. If Keith had not first thrown in that treasure of Donald's, Perhaps in justice, I ought to blame my cousin Ian for giving it to him. Hector, meanwhile, was looking round their joint prison. The room stood at the corner of the block of buildings in the fort nearest to the loch, and was actually blessed with a window in each of its outer walls. It was, therefore, unusually light and airy, and had a view across and down Loch Lene. In some ways, though it was less lofty, it had already reminded Ewan of the tower-room at Fort Augustus, where he had once gone through such mental anguish. Oh, this place might be worse, now pronounced the newcomer. Oh, I doubt this room was not originally intended to keep prisoners in. Going to one of the windows, he shook the bars. Oh, not very far to the ground, I should suppose, but there seems to be a considerable drop afterwards, down that bastion wall on the lock side. But Ewan, scarcely heeding, was murmuring that he ought never to have brought Dr. Cameron to Ardroy. Hector turned round from his investigations. Oh, yet he's clear away now, Ewan, that's certain. Oh, but the authorities must guess that he is in Scotland. Oh, it is no more than a guess. They do not know it. Even from that unlucky letter of mine, I do not think they could be sure of it. Oh, Hector, what was in that letter? asked his fellow captive. And why were you carrying it? On someone else's account, I suppose. It was very unfortunate that you were charged with it. Lieutenant Grant got rather red. He stuffed his hands into his breeches pocket and studied the floor for a moment. 
Then he lifted his head and said with an air of resignation, I may as well make a clean breast of it. Ever since my mishap, I've been wondering how I could have been so misguided. But I had the best intentions, Ewan, as you'll hear. I wrote the letter myself. I wrote it yourself and carried it on you. And to whom was it, then? Oh, to Clooney Macpherson. Oh, but you were on your way to Clooney Macpherson. Or so I understood. Yes, I was. Oh, but you know, you and how jealously the secret of his hiding place in Badenoch is kept, and how devilish hard it is to come at him, even when one is accredited as a friend. I'd no doubt, but that from the information I had been given, I should meet with some of his clan, but whether they would consent to guide me to his lair on Ben Alder was quite another matter. So, thinking over the problem that morning, it occurred to me that I would write him a short letter, in case I found difficulty in gaining access to his person. Oh, you will ask me why in heaven's name I wrote it beforehand and carried it on me. But it was really my caution, Ewan, that was my undoing. I saw that it would not be wise to write it in a shape which any chance person could read, and that I must turn most of it into cipher. But I could not write my letter and then turn portions of it into cipher. A laborious process, as you know sitting on a tussock of heather in a wind on Ben Alder, with an impatient gilly of Clooney's gibbering urse at me. So I wrote down my information as shortly as I could, and turned it into cipher before setting out, in order to have it ready to hand over, I should need a rise. And I still believe that the cipher may defy reading, though when you came upon me by Loch Trig, knowing that the letter was gone from me, with the doctor's and Loch Dorney's names in it, I... He made one of his half-French gestures. Yes, said Ewan meditatively. As things turned out, your notion was not a fortunate one. Was the letter directed to Clooney? No, that foolishness at least I did not commit, since I meant to give it, if at all, straight into the hands of one of his men. Oh, that's something, certainly. And if the man who took it was a spy, and not an ordinary robber, which is always possible. I should say the letter had been sent straight to Edinburgh or to London. Oh, why not to the old fellow here? Oh, tis true that if he had it, he could not read the cipher, but that Captain Jackson might. Oh, I think the letter was never brought here, because if it had been, even though neither of them could read a word of it, they would know that it had been taken from you on Tuesday, and would hardly have wasted their time in allowing you to pretend that you were at Ardroy until Saturday, nor have sent for Dr. Kincaid to testify that you were not the Mr. Sinclair whom he saw there, or worse luck, on Thursday. Oh, unless they wish to give me more rope to hang myself in, commented Hector, with a slight access of gloom. But as to that, he added after a moment, more cheerfully, Oh, I am more like to be shot as a deserter by the French than hanged as a conspirator by the English. Oh, you should have thought of that before coming here and giving yourself up, exclaimed Ewan. Oh, are you serious, Hector? And no, confessed Lieutenant Grant with a grin. Lord Ogilvy will see to it that he does not lose one of his best officers in that manner. I'll report before my leave is up, never fear. 
And by the way, I was carrying my commission on me as a safeguard, though I denied it. And the scoundrel who took my papers has that, too. A bad meeting to him. Oh, I thought you were lying to those officers just now, observed Ardroy. But, again, had your commission been brought here, I'm sure that Captain Jackson could never have resisted the temptation of clapping it down in front of you when you denied that you had it. I wonder, remarked Hector rather irrelevantly, who has done the more lying of late, you or I? Nay, you, past the doubt, for you have had vastly more opportunity. And you don't enjoy it, more's the pity. End of section 7Section 8 of The Gleam in the North by D. K. Broster. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Eileen. Chapter 8 On Christmas Night. 1. No more scope for lying, however, was to be afforded to either of the captives, nor were they invited to walk out of Fort William, though for a week, ten days, a fortnight, this was their waking hope each morning. But as this perennial plant daily bloomed and faded, Ewan began to think that Colonel Layton was not, perhaps, so happy in exchange as some had fancied for the astute but determined Crawford, that he was keeping them there because he knew that he was incompetent and wanted to disguise the fact by a show of severity. Of course, it was quite possible that he was only obeying orders from Edinburgh, or, as time went on, from London, but that they could not find out. Oh, at any rate, declared Hector, he is stupid, a bête comme une oie, a man one cannot reason with. I saw that at once. Stupid or clever, Colonel Layton was the master of the situation. As the October days crawled by, shortening a little, so that one saw the glow from the sunset, when there was one, fall ever a little less far round on the wall. Lieutenant Grant's temper grew shorter also. What right had Colonel Leighton to keep him imprisoned here, an officer of a foreign power, against whom he had no producible evidence? He kept sending messages to that effect, and getting the invariable reply that, since the Lieutenant Governor had only his word that he possessed this status, Mr. Grant must produce his commission, or something equivalent, if he hoped to be believed. Long ago it had become plain that poor Hector's chivalrous attempt at a bargain was worse than useless, for his surrendering himself had not released his brother-in-law. Its only effect was to have introduced another inmate into the cage, and one who was as restless as any squirrel. November set in, cold and very windy, and with it came a sinister reminder and that there are even worse fates than bondage. There lay in Fort William a prisoner, brought thither from Inverary, tied on a horse at the beginning of October, for whom the sands of captivity were running out. On the 7th of November, a day of tempest, an armed procession set out down the side of Loch Linne, and in the midst was James Stewart of Aachen. Next morning, in the same high wind, he was taken across Loch Leven and hanged at Balachulish in Appen, and the scene of the murder of Campbell of Glenure, meeting his unjust fate with composure, 
and with a psalm destined ever after to be associated in that country with his name, the thirty-fifth. And presumably, to impress them with the wisdom of submissive conduct, and the two imprisoned Jacobites were given a full account of the proceedings, and Ewan, with his mother's steward blood on fire, chalked up one more count in the score against the Campbells. November was to have seen that attempt on the liberty of George the Second, over which Ewan and his brother-in-law had come to loggerheads that night at Ardroy. But no news of any such attempt filtered through to the captives. Ewan was very glad, and Hector presumably sorry. It was a subject not mentioned between them, although the breach which it had made was healed. And so another five or six weeks had trailed by. James Stewart's chain-encircled body, still guarded by soldiers, rattled and froze on the hillock by Balakulish Ferry, and Lieutenant Hector Grant of the Regiment d'Albany, by this time much more nearly resembled a panther than a squirrel. He could think or talk of nothing but escape, and every day his denunciations of Ewan for his passivity became more fervid. He told him, among other things, that he was like a cow which stays in a byre, merely because the farmer has put it there. In vain, Ewan pointed out the small advantages to be reaped by escape, at least in his own case, since he could not possibly return to Ardroy. He would be re-arrested at once. As Hector knew, he had twice written to a lawyer in Edinburgh to take up his case. Oh, yes, but what answer have you had? Hector would reply. You are over-trusting, and that old Leighton of the devil never forwards your letters, and is clear. He probably uses them as curl papers for his wig. Yet when Ewan offered his assistance in carrying out the very unpromising plans for his own escape, with which Hector constantly dallied, the young man would not hear of it, alleging that he had got Ardroy into sufficient trouble already. But at last Ewan's own patience, not natural to him, but painfully acquired in the difficult years since his return from exile, was completely exhausted. For one thing, it fretted him more with every day that dawned that he knew nothing of Archie's doings, nor had even learned whence that aid was to come on which Dr. Cameron was building. So, one day about mid-December, when he and Hector had been discussing the various unsatisfactory plans for escape, which the latter had concocted, he considerably startled that youth by saying, Let us fix on Christmas Day, then, for the garrison will be more or less drunk, and we may have some small chance of walking out in the manner you propose. For the great obstacle to evasion in the orthodox way, by sawing through the bars of the window and letting themselves down, was the by now established impossibility of procuring a file or anything like it. Hector leaped up from his chair. Enfin! You mean it, Ewan. You're at last converted. Dieu soit lui! And you suggest Christmas Day. You do not think that Hogmanay would be better? No, for the garrison is English. It is on the evening of Christmas Day that we must look for the effect of their potations. On Christmas Day be it, then. Now we can plan a better purpose. 2. During these weary weeks Ewan had written as often as he was allowed, and to his wife, and had received replies from her, 
all correspondence, of course, passing through the hands of the authorities at Fort William, so that only personal and domestic news could be conveyed. But Allison had all along been determined to come and visit him, should his release be delayed, and wrote a few days after this that she believed she should succeed in getting permission to do so before Christmas. Now, oh, Faith, if she do not come before, it will be of little use, or so I hope, coming after, declared her brother. How oh, indeed, if one wished to throw dust in the eyes of that latent creature, it might have been well had she said that she was coming at the new year. How oh, but I, at least, desire to be here when she comes, objected Ewan. In his heart of hearts, he thought that the new year would probably still find them in Fort William, since the success of their plan for Christmas Day depended upon so many factors out of their control. But he did not wish to dash Hector's optimism, and proceeded with his occupation of making a sketch map of Loch Linne and its neighbourhood from memory on a clean pocket handkerchief, though, in truth, pencil and linen combined but ill for cartography. And four days before Christmas Allison came, a message from the lieutenant governor had previously apprised the captives of the event, and they trimmed each other's hair and shaved with great particularity. Lady Ardroy had written that she would bring them some Christmas fare, and this, the two agreed, would prove a most useful viaticum for the subsequent journey. She brought something else, more unexpected. The young and courteous officer who escorted her up himself carried the big basket of provisions, for, to the captain's amazement, Alison's two hands were otherwise engaged. One held the small hand of Keith, so wrapped about in furs that he looked a mere fluffy ball. The other rested on Donald's shoulder. The officer deposited the basket on the table and swiftly closed the door on the family reunion, but not before Alison was in her husband's arms. It was over three months since she had seen him marched away down the avenue at Ardroy. And then, while Hector and his sister embraced, Ewan could attend to the claims of his offspring. How oh, Keithy, you look for all the world, like a fat little bear, he exclaimed, catching him up, to find him as smooth-cheeked, as long-lashed, as satisfying to feel in one's arms as ever. Nor was the small person at all abashed by his surroundings, remarking that he had seen a great many red gentlemen downstairs, and why was father living with him? He would prefer him to come home. The fairies had restored his deers unharmed, and he now had in addition a dove fay with horns, which he had put in the large, large basket so that father could see it. Meanwhile Donald, who appeared grown, and did seem a trifle overawed by the place in which he found himself, rather shyly told him that Angus had recovered the claymore hilt from the loch of the eagle, and he too asked, not so cheerfully as Keith, even reproachfully, why his father did not return, as mother had said he would. But it was the prisoners who had most questions to put. Chief among Dewan's was, what had become of Dr. Cameron? To his disappointment, Alison knew nothing of his movements, and still less, as discreet inquiry on her husband's part elicited, of what success or failure he had met with in his mission. It was said that he had left the West altogether, owing to the persistent searches made for him. 
Oh, then it is well known to the English that he is in the Highlands, said Ewan despondently. And it is my fault. And no, said Alison with decision. The knowledge seems too widespread for that. Oh, but enough of Dr. Archibald for the moment. I have to speak of something which concerns you both more nearly at this time. And it would be better to speak French, and because of the children, she added, plunging into that tongue, which they all three spoke with ease. And, beckoning them close to her, Lady Ardroy, to their no small astonishment, unfolded a plan of escape, which, it seemed, had been devised in conjunction with young Ian Stewart of Inverna Cree, her husband's cousin, and the rest of his steward kin in Appen. If he and Hector could succeed in getting out of the fort, and would be on the shore of Loch Linne at a given spot and hour on the night of Christmas Day. What night? exclaimed both her hearers together. Alison looked a little startled. Oh, we had thought of Christmas night for it, and because the garrison. What are you both laughing at? At that, Hector laughed the more, and Ewan seized and kissed her. Because, Mukri, you or Ian must have the two sides, I think. And that is precisely the night that Hector and I were already favouring, and for exactly the same reason. Now go on. Flushed and eager, Alison went on. Under the fort a boat would be waiting, manned by stewards. This, with all possible speed, would convey them down Loch Linne to Inverna Cree in Appen, where old Alexander Stewart, Ewan's maternal uncle, proposed that the fugitives should remain hid for a while. Some twenty miles would then lie between them and Fort William, while, in any case, the pursuit would probably be made in the first instance toward Ardroy. To all the first part of the plan, Ewan agreed without demur. The presence of a boat waiting for them would solve their greatest difficulty, how to leave the neighbourhood of the fort without taking the most easily traced way therefrom by land. For the previous part of the programme, the actual breaking out of their prison, they must, as before, rely upon themselves, and upon the effects of the garrison's Christmas celebration. But to taking refuge with his uncle and cousin, Ewan would not agree. If I succeed in getting free, and darling, it's more than enough that I shall owe them. Hector must please himself, but he behoves to make haste to rejoin his regiment, but I'm not going to risk bringing trouble on folk who are now at peace, and particularly after what took place in Appen last spring, and for which an Appen man has paid so dearly. My plan is to reach Edinburgh somehow, and there secure the legal aid for which I've been vainly trying by letter. And, and though there's not overmuch chance of justice for a Jacobite, I would yet make an effort after it, and a free man has better chance of this than a prisoner. The English know the justice of my case, or they would not have denied me the services of an advocate. After that, if all goes well, I shall be able to return to you and the bairns in quiet. And be ready for the call to arms when it comes, he added internally, for not even to Alison had he revealed what Archibald Cameron had told him. After this, Alison set the children to unpack the basket and to range its contents on the table. I must keep them occupied at a distance for a few moments, she explained, as she came back. Now, first, for your escape from this room. 
since there are bars to your windows. Hold out a hand, one of you. Oh, not a file, exclaimed Hector, almost snatching from his sister the little key to freedom. Oh, you angel from heaven! Alison smiled. What was Ian Stewart and thought of that? Oh, there's something further. You may be wondering why I've not taken off my cloak all this while. If I had, you would certainly be thinking I'd lost my figure. And, smiling, she suddenly held her mantle wide. Oh, faith, no, admitted Hector. Oh, that's not the gimp waist I've been accustomed to see in you, my sister. Now wait, and you shall know the reason for it. I'll look out of the window, and the two of you, until I bid you turn. The two men obeyed. From the table came the chatter of the children, very busy over the basket. My want to see what's in that little pot. Oh, Keithy, you'll drop that if you're not more careful. Oh, here's another cheese. Now, said Alison's voice, lift up my cloak. Husband and brother turned round, and, deeply puzzled, each raised the side of it. In her arms, Lady Ardroy held, all huddled together, the coils of a long, thin, strong rope. Oh, take it. Hide it quickly. Don't let the ween see it. Keithy might go talking of it before the soldiers below. Oh, I thought you might find it of service. Hector flung his arms about her. Of service? What is what I've been praying for every day? Oh, Alison, you're a sister in ten thousand. Oh, hide it under a mattress, Ewan, until we have an opportunity to dispose of it, as this heroine has done. For our room might be searched if they grew suspicious. And, ma foi, if our jailers notice anything amiss with our figures, they will but think we have grown fat upon your Christmas fare, oh, darling. Keithy, help you make yours bed, father? asked the voice of one anxious to be helpful, as Ewan hastily carried out Hector's first suggestion. And the owner's voice trotted over to him and lifted an inquiring gaze. Oh, but why are you doing that now? Alison whisked him away. Oh, tis extraordinary, she remarked in French, how children always see what they should not. Nevertheless, some half-hour later, two men, each winding half a rope round their bodies beneath their clothes, would have given a good deal had those indiscreet and innocent eyes still been upon them. And the room seemed so empty now. Only among the provisions on the table stood, and very stiffly, Keithy's ridiculous new wooden stag, with one of its birch-twig horns hanging down broken, Keithy at the last having left the animal there for his father's consolation. The recipient, however, found now that it came nearer than he liked to unmanning him. 3. One may arrange an escape with due regard for sheltering darkness and the festive preoccupation of one's jailers, may have accomplices in readiness, may join them undiscovered and get a certain distance away from one's prison, only to find that nature is not in a mood to lend her assistance, and that she has, in fact, and definitely resolved to hinder one's flight. And in the highlands at midwinter, this lack of cooperation on her part may lead to serious consequences. In other words, young Ian Stewart's boat, with its four rowers, was having an increasingly rough and toilsome journey down Loch Linne 
this Christmas night. The party had waited undetected in the boat on the upper reach of the loch near the fort. The same loch had attended the reception of the two fugitives, on whose descent from the window and down the counterscarp to the shore fortune had also smiled, and, amid mutual congratulations, rescuers and rescued, had started on the twenty miles homeward pull. The wind, as they knew, was dead against them. Hence they could not help themselves by a sail, and the tide would shortly be against them also. But these were circumstances which had for some time been anticipated. What, however, was dismaying, though not at all beyond precedent on Loch Linne, was the rapidity with which this contrary wind was rising in strength, and the degree to which it was lashing up the waters of the loch to anger. The boat itself was heavy and solid, and there was little risk of its being swamped, though now and again a wave would fling a scatter of spray over the bows. The real danger lay in the fact that its progress was being so retarded, and that dawn, even early day, might be upon them before they had covered nearly as much distance from Fort William as was desirable, seeing that with daylight they could be observed and reported upon from the shore. At the helm Ian Stewart, more and more uneasy, watched the pallid light spreading in the east, though the mist leant low upon the mountains of Ardgower to their right. In front, about a mile away, a single light in some small cottage on the shore indicated the narrows, with a long spit of land from the Ardgower side pushed out, till, in that one place, Loch Linne was only a quarter of a mile across, instead of a mile and a quarter. Young and Vernacree looked at the set faces of his men as they tugged at the oars, and turned to his cousin beside him. Oh, I'd hoped to be through the narrows before the tide made there, but I fear it is too late. You know with what force the flood rushes up through them at first, and with this wind and the men so spent, I doubt we shall be able to pass for a while. Ewan nodded. He was beginning to have the same doubt. And then, let us pull in near the Ardgower shore, out of the tide-rip, until the first force of it is over. Shall I relieve one of your gillies? Aye, you'd best let me. Look there. For the bow-rower, at that very moment, was showing signs of collapsing over his oar. Before Ian Stewart could prevent the substitution, even had he wished, Ewan was clambering carefully forward, past the other oarsmen in the rocking craft, all unconscious on what a journey that change of place was to launch him. He got the exhausted rower off the thwart to the bottom of the boat and seized the oar, finding himself glad to handle it after three months of enforced inaction. Slowly but rather more steadily now, the boat drew near to comparative shelter and away from the oncoming flood racing through the neck of the narrows. Nevertheless, the water was still far from smooth, for gusts of wind came tearing over the low-lying point of the spit. Had they ceased rowing, they would have been blown back, or, worse still, got broadside onto the wind. We had much better pull right into land, thought Ewan, lest another man should collapse. And the thought had not long formulated itself before the leader of the expedition came to the same conclusion, and, after vainly trying to shout it to his cousin, 
sent down by word of mouth from man to man the information that he was going to make straight for the shore near the cottage and beach the boat there. Ewan nodded his head vigorously to show his approval, and since he was the bow oar and must jump ashore with the rope, reached about behind him with one hand until he found it, realizing as he did so that in such rough weather it would be no easy matter to perform this operation neatly. Preoccupied with seizing the right moment and doubting whether, in the bluster of wind and waves, Ian could from the stern apprise him of this, he pulled on with the rest, glancing now and then over his shoulder to see how near they were getting to the dim grey beach with its line of foam. And the moment had come, for there was Ian waving his arm and shouting something which he could not catch, Hector also. Rapidly shipping his oar, Ewan clutched the rope and jumped over the gunwale into cold and yeasty water above his knees, which sucked heavily at him as he waded hastily into shallower, trailing the rope with him. Braced for the strain, he was hauling in the slack of this when that, or rather those, fell upon him of which his kinsman's shout had been intended to warn him. Two men in greatcoats, appearing, so it seemed to him, from nowhere, had dashed into the water with offers of help. Bewildered at first, Ewan was beginning to thank them, when, to his extreme dismay, he caught the gleam of scarlet under their coats. No, no, he shouted, almost unconsciously, his one thought being that the whole boatload were delivering themselves into an ambush, and for somehow he was aware that the door of the lighted cottage behind him had opened and was emitting more soldiers. Apart from Hector, recaptured, he had a vision of his cousin Ian, involved in very serious trouble. And, obviously, Ian's gillies had the same idea, for instead of pulling in to the shore, they were now vigorously backing water to keep off. What their young laird was shouting to them was probably furious orders to go on and land. But the receding and tossing boat itself tore the rope alike through Ewan's hands and those of the soldiers from which he was now trying to snatch it. He himself made a desperate effort to reach the bows and scramble on board again. But it was too late. This could only be done now by swimming. And, moreover, one of the soldiers had by this time closed with him, and they were soon struggling up to mid-thigh in icy, swirling water. At last, Ewan tore himself from the man's clutches with a push which sent his assailant under, spluttering. In front of him was the boat which he could not reach, with Ian standing up in the stern gesticulating and shouting something, of which the wind carried away every syllable, while Ardroy on his side shouted to the rowers to keep off, and that he would fend for himself. Then, the better to show his intention, he turned his back on the boat, his face to the shore on which he was left. The ducked redcoat had arisen, dripping like a merman, and cursing like the proverbial trooper, his companion was dodging to and fro in a few inches of water, waiting to intercept the marooned fugitive on his emergence from the swirl on the beach. Two more were hurrying down from the open door of the cottage, and Ewan was unarmed, half-drenched, and hampered by the breaking water in which he stood. Oh, it looked like prison again. Most undoubtedly it looked like it. 
he set his teeth and began to plunge stumblingly through the foam towards the shore, but away from the reinforcement. And some three-quarters of an hour later, rather to his own astonishment, he was crouching, wet, exhausted, but free, behind a boulder on the slope of Miaulbrach at the entrance to Glen Cloverden. How he had got there he hardly knew, but it seemed to have been by dodging, by running, and by one short encounter of the nature of a collision, in which it was not he who had proved the sufferer. He had been favoured by the bad light and by the high, broken ground, an outcrop of the height of Skur non Enechin, for which he had made at full speed, and which, by falling again into a sort of gully, had made something of a wall between him and his pursuers, who never, in fact, pursued him so far. The wind was dropping now, and the mist crawling lower. He was safe enough from the soldiers, at any rate. Presumably the boat had got through the narrows. He had not had time to look. He could not help wondering what were the present feelings of his cousin Ian, who had undertaken this exploit, involving a good deal of risk, for him, a kinsman, and had in the end only carried off a young man with whom he had no ties of blood at all. Still, from Ewan's own point of view, this brayside, though windy and destitute of food, was greatly to be preferred to the room with the barred windows in Fort William. A better peace in a bush than peace in fetters, as the Gallic proverb had it. But what he really wanted was peace at Ardroy. End of section 8「Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy sandwich, but you're the Fileo fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun? Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.